Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Mel McLaughlin. Welcome to No Turning Back, the Tokyo 2020 podcast. It's been a long five-year wait, but the Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games are finally happening and there is no turning back now. In this series, I'll be meeting some of the athletes going for gold in Tokyo and sharing their stories. In this episode, Paralympian Nick Beveridge details the start of his second life thanks to a rare medical condition, his positive outlook on life and his road to Tokyo 2020. Thanks so much for having a chat with us. We're really excited. Just so you know, we got together between the group of us. Who do we want to hear from? Who do we want to learn more from? And um, one of the girls straight away said your name and she said, we need to hear from him because he will change your life. What do you, what do you think of that? That's what people think of you. Thanks, Mel. That's a heavy introduction. <laughs> I, <am to laughs> I don't focus. know. I don't really know where to go from here. Um, some, yeah, a massive compliment. Thanks. Well, um, well, it's it's important that you know. Um, I I think the impact that you are having on people, obviously, with what you've been doing, is obviously you as the athlete, but what you're doing around that to to inspire people with what you do. Um, again, I guess I don't really know where to go from there. It's come, you caught me off guard a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, well, I'm going to actually high five myself there because everyone says how articulate you are and what a great speaker you are, but. Uh, the moment we've stumped you twice now. You've just come out here specifically and been like, I'm going to get Nick. <laughs> um, show him what's what. Uh, no, I suppose selfishly, like, I kind of just have been doing doing what I think is best for me. And, and thankfully, um, it seems, according to you, that it's helping other people and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's helpful. Well, obviously, you've, you've spoken a bit about your journey it's obviously important that people know, especially when it comes to the Paralympics, which are right around the corner, just quietly. How do you feel when I say that? Finally, right around the corner. I feel settled. I'm at peace. Um, I think the Games will be a really good opportunity for a lot of people to, to come back and uh, together and not just celebrate a return to global racing, but also I think there's a lot more love and appreciation there for, for the industry itself. Everyone has different journeys. A lot, obviously, the spotlight was definitely on Olympians, Paralympians, athletes in general, but with Tokyo around the corner and then it got postponed the way it did, it impacted people differently. How did it impact you? It's interesting. There's a lot of diverse um, reactions that you, you hear people speak about. And what I really like is that there's no right or wrong response. Everyone's kind of entitled to, to feel the way that they, they felt relative to their own lives. Uh, for me, initially, I I don't know, I guess I kind of thought that I was on top of everything as a high-performance athlete and I had really good balance in my life. And then when you're so on for something and it doesn't get taken away entirely but gets significantly watered down, 
the light starts to shine on other areas of your life and you're like, well, maybe I don't have everything as worked out as what I thought I did. Uh, so I probably experienced a little bit of um, an identity dilemma where I was probably too much an athlete without realising it and not so much a, a more holistic person in general. Um, so that time kind of gave me a really good opportunity to, to stop and reflect. Uh, you've probably heard the, um, the saying like the early bird gets the worm. I really like the flip side to that, which I heard a younger triathlete speak about a few years ago where he said, yeah, but the early worm gets eaten. And I find that really profound, especially for high performance sport and life in general in that what's conducive for success for one isn't necessarily for the other. What works for the bird doesn't work for the worm. And I find that it understanding who you are and having a better idea of of you and your yourself, it kind of helps you work out what might be conducive to success for you, as opposed to just trying to lend on strategies that other people use and have been successful for them. So I suppose that extra time away from the, the pressure of preparing for a Paralympics actually kind of helped me work out more about who I am and, and, and what might be successful for someone like me. Okay, you got me. You went really, really deep. Okay, so, so I've I think warmed we're, up now. Yeah, we're one all now. Um, no, amazing way of looking at things. Um, very deep. So I know you've talked about what, if we go back to, you, you've talked about two lives, yeah? Your first life and, and your second life. But if we talk about, if we can talk about what happened when you were 17 years of age, I know you have before, and it's, I don't want to be flippant about it because obviously it was such a, a massive event in your life, life-changing. Can you just, for people who don't know what happened to you, just sort of let us in on, on what transpired? Yeah, okay. To be honest, it, it, it's kind of something that I, I laugh about now. Um, I think mainly just because it, it's, one, there's so much time that's passed, but also I'm comfortable in my own skin now, um, and for so long I wasn't. And I think part of that is, is where the humour comes from for me. I refer to it as, as having two lives because while I'm the same person, everything about it has been significantly different. Uh, a lot of the people that I'm friends with now in my life, they've only come into my life through ways around me having a disability. And when I really think about it, I'm just not sure how we would have met otherwise. And I quite like that um, there's been all these little gifts that have come about in my second life. Um, my first one, ended when I was 17. I was an able-bodied kid. I was nearing the end of year 12 and I really loved sport. I wasn't a high-performance athlete or anything by any means. I kind of just, I just loved sport. I just loved playing it. My parents were like, if you do well at school, you can play as much sport as you want. So that was sort of like my motivation <laughs> yeah. for getting through school and, and getting okay grades. Um, one night on the phone, I was chatting to a mate. I think we had like a water polo final the next night and um, just having a bit of um, jib-jab and banter and, and suddenly it just started to get really hard to breathe. Uh, I just I thought maybe it was a bit of indigestion from dinner or something. So I kind of kicked on and I suppose maybe Australianised it and was like, oh, I'm just being soft, it's fine. After a few more minutes, I, I kind of realised I wasn't fine. It was, it was really starting to intensify and, and breathing was getting really difficult. Um, so I got off the phone and, and just in the time it took me to get downstairs to my parents, um, my body started to go into spasms. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but it's kind of when a muscle contracts 
without you wanting it to and the ferocity and frequency of it changes. And that was kind of happening for me from just below my chest down. It's interesting how you don't really know how you're going to react when you're in a high pressure situation until you're actually in it. So all credit to my parents that they actually, they did really well. They kind of just got me in the car straight away. I guess maybe something comes with being a parent and knowing your child that you just know that something's, something's, yeah, not, not there, not right. They got me into emergency and it's funny, like for so long I just thought I remembered everything about that night um, and things I'd said and didn't say, but it must have been quite traumatic for my parents because it was only like a few years ago that mum actually said to me that I told her in the car I thought I was dying. And I imagine that must have been really hard for her to hear and still play it as cool a cat as what she did or what I think she did. Lying in the emergency room, uh, things started to intensify even more, like breathing was more difficult, the spasms were more ferocious and to be honest all I really remember was both of my legs kind of like spasming up in the air at a 90 degree angle and I must have just passed out from the pain after that because I don't, I don't remember anything. Waking up in a, in a hospital room uh, a few hours later, I was kind of lying in the dark, the, the light was coming in from the nurse's station, I could see it just out the window and I was squiff and you probably know that when you're uncomfortable you kind of just move and you do it and you don't really have to process the thoughts too much, things just happen. And so I was kind of innately just waiting to stop feeling uncomfortable and it wasn't happening. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? And I kind of opened my eyes and like looked down and watched and thought about it um, consciously and I still wasn't straightening. So I ended up grabbing like the hospital bed rail and kind of like pulling myself straight. I could see a nurse out the station and I went to call for help, but I couldn't yell anymore. It turned out that what had happened was I'd developed a, what I was told was a rare neurological disorder called transverse myelitis where effectively like your immune system gets confused and attacks your spinal cord that causes the membrane on the outside to become inflamed which pushes the protective fluid on the inside against your cord so it's like you've broken your spine but you haven't and that left me a paraplegic overnight uh, from t4 which is just below the chest i always thought being a paraplegic was oh it, you know you just you can't walk but your diaphragm's a muscle too, and that's why I couldn't yell for, for help to the nurse's station was because diaphragm is around T4. I used to have to take a few breaths just to speak a sentence, so I've come a long way being able yeah. to like long-windedly tell you a story now. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a long story for me. <laughs> From there, things were initially frightening, but uh, I guess the, the magnitude of the situation hadn't really sunk in. It was back in 2003, and... As a 17-year-old, only the popular girls at school had mobile phones. So if you, anyone wanted to like make contact with you, they had to, had to actually make effort. They had to call the nurse's station or they'd like make you a card and go old school and actually come up and deliver it to you and things like that. And I was kind of getting inundated with those sort of gestures and I was like, oh, I feel really well supported. Like, if anything, I'd, you know, if, if I can't get through this, like, you know, together we'll all be able to get through it. And I kind of learned a really good lesson which isn't mean or anything, I suppose it's just reality, is as you kind of grow, you either grow with people or you grow apart and yeah. you either have relationships based on connection or circumstance. And I suppose it, it might be a little bit more indicative about who 17-year-old Nick was. It, it turned out that a lot of my relationships were based on circumstance. Um, 
we were mates because we played footy together and footy was kind of what connected us or we were mates because we played hockey together and that's what connected us and when you take away that main connection it puts pressure on the relationship as I wasn't really recovering the way that I'd hoped I would and I suppose everyone else helped hoped I would we all just started to to drift apart and and that's just a part of life I found it hard that it was happening to so many people over a, a relatively short period of time. On top of that, it was like someone had taken the mind of, of 17-year-old Nick from his first life and put it in, you know, a new, a new Nick that was now in this second life. And there was an error there. There was an error between the mind and body. I think about a little toddler um, learning how to do things and they're so good at being bad at things. And they're really resilient and they persevere and they just keep going. Whereas suddenly I wasn't used to being bad at things and I was terrible at everything. I was bad at dressing myself. I was bad at transferring to a chair. I remember for the first couple of months in hospital, like someone had to help like bathe me. And as a 17 year old, I was kind of like, this isn't, this isn't enjoyable. (laughs) I don't like this. I wanted my independence back. And, And I suppose I was relatively attached to the way that I used to do everything in my first life and I just started to hang on to that and I just wanted to get back to being the Nick who did everything the way he did who had the dreams that he had that he was going to go about things the way that he did and I suppose it was that attachment to that identity that kind of caused me to feel really lost at the start of my second life not really know who I was anymore what I was passionate about or kind of what I wanted to do with my life I was really lucky that my parents forced me to participate in my world and they're like, oh, you know, you, you have to get on with life, you have to go to uni, you have to get a job, like that's that's just what you have to do. And, and I'll always be grateful to them for that, that they didn't let me kind of just sit back and, and I guess not have the life that I wanted or thought I was going to have. Um, disability gets a really bad rap sometimes. The issues that I had... They were purely just related to the fact that I couldn't do the things that I used to do, and I liked that. I liked the guy that I used to be. The fact that I just had a disability and that's the reason why I wasn't that guy anymore, it's, it's almost just circumstantial as opposed to a culprit in a way. It's interesting how good things can come wrapped in like really weird ways. I kind of felt like I bumbled through life for nine years of my second life until my health had kind of deteriorated as a result of my disability and I wasn't really left with any other options but quite invasive surgery. The, the state of my life at that point in time, I was like, to the surgeon, I was like, mate, go for it. Like, just cut straight through me, do what you got to do. And in saying that, modern medicine's amazing that these sort of things even exist for what I needed. A result of that was that I was going to have to um, be in bed for three months. That's a long time. Being in yeah, bed for three months post-surgery is a long time. And I suppose the, the light that shone on that situation for me is you can only do so, so much of what you know before you get bored. You can only reread the same books so many times or rewatch the same shows so many times and then suddenly boredom takes over and you're forced to be curious about things you don't understand or that you don't know purely to just try and feed the boredom. It just so happened the London 2012 Paralympics were on TV during that time and I'd love to sit here with you today and be like, I watched the Paralympics and I may want to be a Paralympian. How cool. Um, right. Yeah, it didn't happen. It didn't happen for me like that, which might, might sound controversial, but it, no. it just didn't. 
I hear I hear people say that so often, and um, it's wonderful that yeah, they had that find experience. People find a hero and go, "That's it, I want to be yeah. that guy." It just didn't it didn't work that way for me. I watched it, and I did think it was cool, and it was obvious that you know I was I was watching I was watching some real deal athletes, but it taught me a really important lesson about inspiration. What inspiration really is in that it, it's something that you don't get to choose. If anything, when your mind's open in a way it'll find its way in when it when it's ready or when you've put yourself in that situation where it just happens to be present it found its way in for me in between the competitions they were airing this profile of one of the athletes and I don't remember how many months later um, after they lost their leg to cancer but they went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and like that just that just did it that just it was the first time in my life I'd really felt what I would call inspiration. It was it was very overwhelming. I was suddenly like, I've still got full use of my upper body that's completely unaffected and I feel like I haven't made the most of it. If I recover from this surgery, like I I just I need to do more. I need to do more with my life. I suddenly felt like I'd I was inadequate. I hadn't done enough. Which is a really powerful feeling. But as you can imagine, being fired up with all these emotions um, and wanting to do more and be more I still didn't know who I was therefore I didn't know what avenue to put it into I kind of just suddenly had the the petrol without the car and I was like okay like now what Um, so I kind of did what what most people probably do these days and I just turned to Google and I just I don't know what compelled me to to type this in but I typed something like extreme endurance parasport or something and probably quite fittingly this article about a guy called Bill Chaffee came up and he was an Australian um, paratriathlete Mm -hmm. he was a three-time sprint distance world champion he was training for the Hawaii Ironman and he competed in triathlons uh, as a wheelchair user he swam with his upper body he rode a hand cycle using just his arms and he completed the run leg with a racing wheelchair after reading that article... That's um, quite the extreme, from bumbling through, as you say, for nine years to this. Yeah, I, I suppose that's, that's um, the exciting thing about life is when, when, you f- when you find something that you kind of tuned the same as, you, you just know. Mm. And, and finishing that article, I just knew triathlon was for me. Dr. Bruce Lipton, he talks about harmony and, and that probably stems from what I was saying about being tuned the same um, he uses this great um, example where he talks about two acoustic guitars and if they're tuned the same you can pluck the A chord on one and it'll make the A chord on the other vibrate without being touched purely just because they operate on the same frequency I hope I've explained that properly mm. and and that's that's how I'd describe finding triathlon for me we just we're just tuned the same and I'm sure there's other people out there that have have come across that either in um, other people in their life or or passion projects or careers. Yeah, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, it's one thing to be um, to want to do more. A lot of people want to do more, but I, I don't know if it's wiring that is a reason why some people like yourself, oh, I want to do more. Actually, I want to go and do something ridiculously, you know, extreme and brilliant. Not everyone can make that happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's um, there's a couple of, I suppose, ingredients that, that feed into that, that maybe hold people back. And for me, 
I guess the the key that really unlocked everything was acceptance. It sounds cliche, but um, there's kind of between being able to start where I was and, you know, you find that article about Bill and that's kind of where triathlon started for me. The, The layers below that were... I was suddenly aware of where I was, who I was, and what my circumstances were, because I'd suddenly, in the instant from seeing that um, snippet of the profile of the athlete that inspired me, I'd accepted the fact that this was Nick now, and this Nick just happened to have a disability. And then I found that article about Bill, and he did triathlons with a disability in a certain way, and suddenly that was okay with me. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't need to play hockey anymore. I'm okay not running with my legs. I'm going to do triathlons. I'm going to do it with my arms, and I'm okay with that. And suddenly I was okay with not looking back to this first life and wanting to get back there desperately. It was almost like I'd turned around and seen this whole new world that was right there all the time that maybe my blinders were up to because I um, just... Suffered a major trauma. And you're pro- obviously I was probably grieving, grieving in, in exactly. a weird way, yeah. Not um, in a weird way, obviously. <laughs> but nine years, you sort of say it, yeah, nine years I bumbled my way. That's a long time. It is a long time. So, and, and you, you're grateful to your parents as well, who obviously are amazing as well and, and kept pushing you. In those nine years, you can't really, you know, s- summarise it in a sentence or, or whatever, but what did you go through you so you studied in that time did you was it quite dark for you were you just not accepting it would have been it it would have been really hard for my mates I think in the fact that you know they'd they'd connected with this fella like me who was kind of just started this new life there were those areas between the mind and the body I didn't know so much about myself I was desperately trying to get to back to living the first life yet they were really kind to me and they were understanding and like these are you know 18 19 year old lads like there's no handbook for that like Mm. so probably credit to their parents and their life experiences as well for kind of um developing them in a way where they were able to i suppose have heart and kindness and not throw me under the bus especially with a number of situations that kind of occurred um, and I imagine for them that they could probably acknowledge there was some red flags that they saw that maybe I was oblivious to. Um, but I'd probably, I'd probably credit the mates that I had a lot more for helping me kind of progress through because you, you kind of assimilate to the people you're around and it just so happened that the people that I met when I, I went to uni are just beautiful people. And um, a lot of them were kind of people that I just didn't really have in my life beforehand. And I just slowly like to think that I um, adapted to their better traits and it kind of started to shape me more while still being lost Um, so after uni like I I did I did get a job I did work Um, I still didn't have a passion for sport and that affected me it was it just kind of felt like mentally this light switch that was off and I could see it and I was like I just need to turn it on and I couldn't turn it on I wanted to get back to playing sport and I did try I did try a lot of sports I suppose that curiosity and desperateness to want to get back to sport but without the hunger and desire to be competitive which I suppose is something that I used to enjoy about sport in my first life it, it just didn't mean the same thing to me like just participating wasn't 
it just didn't feel like enough. And so I kind of lost interest in sport and, and it was really just about um, spending time with my mates and, and working. And um, when my health started to deteriorate, I was kind of like, oh, there's gotta be more to life than this. Um, so everything kind of came together at a, at a really good time for me, I suppose, and at a time where I was ready for it too as well. My mates, they, they helped me probably understand as well that um, like you were saying before, you know, so many people want to do things and they can't, you know, they either choose not to make it happen or um, they feel like they can't. I feel like there's a, an adaptation process there that, that doesn't get acknowledged and, and people kind of frown upon where you are and the version of you that the result requires and they don't pay credit to the, you know, the adaptation process. My mates weren't like that. Um, I could, I could say to them, I want to be a triathlete and, you know, these are all the things that I want to try and make happen in the sport. And they wouldn't look at the version of me who's saying that, who was like 30 kilos heavier than I am now, didn't have any of the high performance equipment, was really slow, um, pretty bad at everything, didn't really even fully understand um, how transitions work in triathlons yeah. or anything of the intricacies yet rather than look at me and you can tell in people's eyes and on their faces when mm. they don't believe what you're talking about rather than you know me pick up on those things they're like cool so what do you have to do yeah and it was more it, it became more about then being comfortable leaning into that adaptation process to become that version of nick that the result requires which is a triathlete i was like okay i need to get equipment I need to probably get better equipment. Okay, I need to lose weight. I need to get faster. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, okay, so you saw a, a montage or a story on London, 20, uh, yeah, London 2012. You go to Google and then you just make it happen. I just want to do that, so I'm just going to do that. Yeah, it, it pretty much. It, I feel like that um, makes me sound like I do that for everything in my life. I don't. No, triathlon was the only thing that, that I've done moment. that for. Yeah, yeah, like a calling or something. Yeah, and did it, you tell your parents at the time? Yeah, yeah. What would they say? Um, I think I think because I was still recovering from surgery and things, they were like, "Oh, that's nice." <laughs> <laughs> Typical mom. Yeah, she's like, "Oh, that sounds wonderful." <laughs> Um, what I really liked was that I, I reached out to Triathlon Queensland. I was like, hey, I'm this guy that wants to get into paratriathlons. What do I do? And the sport was still in its infancy then. It only debuted on the Paralympic stage in Rio. Rio, yeah. Um, and they gave, me, they gave me two emails and I, I wrote to, to both of those addresses. And like, to this day, I love that the one that got back to me was Bill Chaffee. Yeah. And his email was quite... Um, considered he didn't he hadn't just sort of like fobbed me up and be like oh that's great yeah cool like start training and whatever he he kind of like outlined things that he experienced trying to get started in the sport almost like making me aware of of particular hurdles um, so that I could mentally start to 
grasp getting over them um, or find strategies to approach getting around them. The biggest hit home for me, though, was at the end of his email, and I, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story, um, it was something along the lines of, uh, I'm, I'm by no means guaranteed to, to race in Rio, but I'd love it if another Australian made it with me. And like that just, yeah, that just really hit home that this three-time world champion was so comfortable in his own skin and welcoming of someone else into the sport that he was like, I'm trying to make a Paralympics. Why don't you come with me? Be another Australian. We need the world to work like that. Yeah. Everyone is genuinely supportive. So Bill has done a lot for the sport. He deserves deserves a lot of credit, um, especially as he, like the period that he came through from. Um, and having the attitude that he did around um, some of the fundamental things. But, yeah, just like just thinking about reading that sentence now, I was like, I could be that other Australian. And for so long, people were like, you know, you need to be a mongrel. Like, why don't you want to be Bill? I'm like, I don't care. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm happy being the other Australian yeah. here. <laughs> the like, Australian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let, me, let me be that guy. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's so in four years, you made it happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so training, you, we obviously lost the weight and all that sort of stuff. How long did that take? Well, I suppose I, I, learned, I learned some good lessons there in that some things just take time. Mm. You, you can't rush everything and training really does drive the change. Um, if you're doing 80 to 90% of, of everything else well in your life and the training is on point, um, you will you will change you will start to become that person that the the result requires which i suppose then um puts a lot of onus back on the the people that you choose to work with and that choose to work with you like your coaches your support um the support staff like physios soft tissues dietitians um and just being having the right people around you that i I suppose for someone like myself as well um i'm not straightforward I can be I can be a little bit of a a challenge as a person and also just involuntarily just my circumstances Um, so being an out-of-the-box thinker um, it helps a lot and thankfully for where I was at in my career at the times that I was at them I always was working with the right person Um, it always makes me feel a little sad and, and I suppose it's relative to everything in life that in high performance sport you don't always get to stay with um the people that have helped you like some coaches help you evolve to a point where suddenly it's not so much that they can't help you anymore it's that there's things that kind of need to be addressed and fresh eyes and that sort of specialty from someone else might be what's best and you've got a connection with a coach for example like sports emotional it's really emotional I'm, I'm not sure whether um, people outside of high performance sport really understand how emotional it is but you spend a lot of time with these people and you ride really high highs and really low lows together um, so when kind of your support network evolves and things it's always I suppose there's always like a tiny grieving process there that you're like why couldn't this person still be still be right? Like you, you yeah. know, um, and so there's there's been some I suppose emo- emotional challenges throughout my career as well that um, you know 
these people that have helped me and I'm grateful to it as well, the, you don't always get to carry each other along. No. Um, you mentioned transitions before, just for people who don't understand how, how hard was that getting your head around and learning, like for the actual act of competing in a triathlon, what, what's that um, like? I'm doing myself. You, you a get dis- help too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing myself a disservice here, but at my first, at my first worlds, um, one of my one of my best mates came with me as my handler. Um, so we're allowed a handler. It's basically um, a one man F1 pit crew kind of thing where you get out of the swim and you get into transition. And most of the time we swim open water and it's qu- it's quite cold, so we wear wetsuits. Um, fortunately, that also assists with buoyancy. For someone like me to get a wetsuit off. I could I could lose time on other competitors so to try and even the playing field they let us all have a handler and this person is basically able to assist you getting from one leg of a triathlon to the other so from the swim they can help you rip your wetsuit off help you get into your hand cycles strap in and go um, and then coming in off the bike they help you get out of your bike and into your racing wheelchair and go and so um, they are a performance role and um, while they're only on for maybe two minutes of a of an hour long race it's a pretty critical two minutes especially when you're competing internationally like a lot of the lads are are really tight um at my first worlds with my mate um he was like we're in transition he was like what do we do now i was like i don't even know (laughs) so i'm so glad that i'm not that nick anymore (laughs) and that i do actually know what to do um and i'm really really grateful for um my handler maddie who um, he's actually a husband of, of a, a former paratriathlete, um, Sally yeah. Pilbeam. She lost her um, arm and, and shoulder to cancer. And he was just always passionate about the space. He always came um, around and traveled with Sal. And so I just kind of, I think about my, I've been in sport nine years, so I've known Maddie for nine years. Um, so it was, it was kind of nice how him and I just sort of connected a bit more. And when I needed a new handler, he was like, mate, I'll do it and trying to solve some of the problems we have he he's kind of just a i'm just going to get in and do it and i was like mate we need to we need to shave some time getting from my hand cycle to the race chair the reality is some of the other boys have a bit more function than me and they're more nimble we're working on being more nimble but they are very nimble and um, agile and some of them can even do like gymnastics routines so they're impressive beings i was like well that's what we're up against here mate they're doing flips into their race chair what are we what are we doing he's like i'll just lift you and throw you in i was like you serious i'm pretty heavy um he was like yeah and the first time we did it he just he made me feel like a pillow so i was like okay this is this sweet is, yeah this is a good relationship we've got yeah. here <laughs> um rio so you got to rio uh like you said it was the debut of the event ninth but you didn't it seems like you weren't all that happy with that. Yeah, it's Is that fair. Yeah, it's a fair. It's a fair comment, um, and it, it, I suppose it kind of probably lends itself to some more of the experience I had during the like the COVID break. Um, was that you never really know what your your gold medal moment is. Obviously, like a lot of athletes want to believe that gold means gold, mm. and they're going for gold, and they're going to win gold, and that's their gold medal moment. Um, but statistically, for a lot of athletes, they, they're not going to win gold, um, despite their best efforts. Sometimes their gold medal moment might be a bronze, or it might be a fifth. Or it, for some athletes, a gold medal moment could just be making a team. And for so much of my career, 
I never really paid homage to the appreciation of what my gold medal moments might be. I was always looking ahead like, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to do better than this. Like, I'll get, I've got another shot at this event or at this event or at this event. And I suppose going to my first Paralympics, that should have been my gold medal moment, just making the team relative to where I'd come from and how quickly we'd done it and how inexperienced I was. Um, and instead I kind of just glossed over it and was like, I came second last. It doesn't matter I was ninth in the world. <laughs> um, I came second last. I'm like, oh, it's not good enough. I want more. And that hunger is really good, but being able to balance it with reality, I think is really, for me, I think is really important. And it's nice now that I'm kind of just more appreciative of the, I suppose, opportunities that I've had and that do you look I, back and had. go I was in Rio and that was amazing yeah I, I look I look back and I was like I was in Rio and that was a great gold medal moment um, I came fourth in the world in 2017 and I acted like it was nothing and like if you ask anyone who knows better they would say that I should never have got close to fourth um, and I should have you know that was a that in itself was a gold medal moment for me coming second at commonwealth games was a gold medal moment for me and these i sort of just looked at them more like they were stepping stones which in a way like as i mentioned it did fuel, fuel my hunger which was good but I, I guess i was putting too much fuel into that fire coming second by the way don't gloss over that the silver medal on the gold coast that was I felt lucky enough to be there just to experience it all. Did you find that um, extra special? Just, I guess, the level of inclusivity, everyone was involved. Is it just a happy time? Is that fair in terms of how you guys saw that whole experience? Yeah, Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast would be one of the best events that I've, I've personally yeah. been a part of. It felt like that was a moment in time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it, I've never raced with so many people around an entire triathlon course. And we're talking like a, you know, a 5K loop. You, we race for 20K on the bike and yeah. you're doing four laps and there were people just everywhere the whole way around. I've, other than Rio, I've not experienced something like that. And I suppose being em- embraced by the community and, and hopefully the community feeling like, like we were embracing them back. Um, has really kind of helped for for future events in in the country and also helped expose certain sports that might not get in the limelight to to others like i found triathlon with bill you just don't know who's gonna stumble across it who who might be tuned the same and suddenly finding that kind of purpose in their life it then helps other things in their life make sense too um so that's that's kind of my hope and what I feel like the Commonwealth Games might have helped do for for Australians yeah. is, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, and do you, just on people, I guess the fans and people who look up to you, do you get a sense of, I know I touched on this at the beginning, but, you know, it, like kids, for example, do you have much interaction with kids that are looking up to you and idolising you? Do you get any sense of that with what you do? Me, not so much, but I do see other athletes with it. Um, one of my one of my coaches, Louise, um, she I'm ask you about. <laughs> she runs um, and like she's wonderful for the wheelchair racing community. Like, Louise Savage. Yeah, the yeah, things just, that just Louise Savage um, is just a legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, the things that she does behind the scenes that people don't know about is 
I really like her as a person, but mm. that makes me like her even more. And she doesn't even promote it herself. And there's this group of kids that she she coaches, um, like chooses to coach. That doesn't, as far as I know, there's no incentive there for her other than she wants to help. And like, there's been a few times I'll go down. And if anything, they'll just want to ask questions about like Madison or other wheelchair races. Yeah. <laughs> and not really anything about me, but I kind of like that. That fits in with fits in with my style. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm just one of the kids. It's cool. The <laughs> yeah. other Australian. Yeah, well. other Australian. Yeah, you don't need to know my name. <laughs> <laughs> what about that training setup though? Because, you know, it's yourself, Maddie Di Rosario, Louise Savage. What is that like? Louise, for me, is one of the few times where I let myself down because I was a bit of a fangirl. I was a bit starstruck. I just thought, wow. Unprofessional. I know. (laughs) Can we have a photo of Louise, please? And she's like, oh, God. She just, you know, just mocks me. She's lovely. She wouldn't have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. But she has an aura about it. Like, is that something you feel? But what's it like anyway? I know she's got a wicked sense of humour as well, but that that little team of um, superstars, if you like. Thanks for for throwing me in there (laughs) with that. well, I, being a triathlete, I don't I don't train with Louise and Maddie full time. I, I just with my wheelchair racing stuff, I might end up like with Maddie maybe one once a week if I'm lucky. Louise, um, I have more interaction with, but it definitely it was definitely a, a nice step up for me. Um, I came from a, a triathlon high performance program on the Gold Coast, and that like played a really important role for me in helping me see what high-performance able-bodied triathletes go through and that kind of like I suppose satisfied that realm of my development but there was this whole area of my career that was going undeveloped and that was the specificity around wheelchair racing and being a para-athlete and while it's it's great that um we all do get treated the same and that national sporting organisations are taking the efforts to treat and recognise us all the same. As I mentioned before about the bird and the worm, there are very specific things that you kind of can't skim over in your, in your development trajectory. You do need to address them and you do need to do the work and I hadn't done that. Linking up with Louise and, and getting exposure to, to MADS as well, it started to to fill those gaps and educate me and make me aware of, of some of those things I needed and if anything help me look back and be like so that's why I was so bad at that that makes sense now <laughs> um, you guys are dreaming big for Tokyo yeah oh of course I, I like that I can sit here with you now and feel um, no anxiety or pressure in anything in saying that like, I'm going for gold and it's nice to be at that point in my career where Good for you. So you should. I can be that unrealistic. Um, if if you um, know my competition, um, one of the guys that we're up against, I think, I don't want to get the number wrong, but I'm probably going to. I think he's like a six-time world champion. He's undefeated in like five years. So when I say I'm going for gold, people think of him and they're like, you are kidding yourself. I'm like, life's the only time where you can kid yourself. If you don't prepare for gold, then you're never really going to know what the gold medal moment is. If I win a bronze or a fifth or whatever, and I've gone for gold and I've prepared for that gold, and that's what I end up with, then there's some peace that comes with that. And like, well, that's that's all I was good enough for. If I say to myself, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm going for going for fourth or whatever, 
the standard that you prepare to, it significantly comes down, I find, and suddenly you're not getting a true reflection of, of where you're at or, or what you can actually do. So now I feel very much at peace saying, I'm going for gold, and I think that this is the only time in your life where you can. Yeah, and that's fair enough as well. I've just got to ask you about your parents again because so we got to you telling them what you wanted to do. And they're like, oh, that's nice, darling. So now to have gone, and did they go to Rio or were they no, on the they Gold didn't Coast? Go to Rio. What, they were on the Gold Coast. What's it meant to them to see what you've done with your life after such a, a tough journey? And what are they going to be thinking? Obviously, Rio, Gold Coast would have been amazing being there. Um, and, and now Tokyo. Uh, I think, um, without putting words in their mouth too much, um, my parents are, are pretty old school and. They keep me grounded and leveled, uh, level-headed. Um, so when they do say things like, oh, you know, we're really proud, it, it does hit home. They're not kind of statements that um, they throw around willy-nilly. So it, it does make me feel um, more proud of myself than I already do to know that, you know, you've made your mum and dad happy, that they they like what they see, that especially for them seeing where I've come from, like the you know, that first start of my second life where, like, they would have known I was lost. They would have known I was struggling. Um, I probably said things to them like I didn't like my life and things. And, like, as a parent, like, how do you deal with mm. that? How do you how do you kind of just pat your kid on the head and be like, you'll be okay, like, keep going. <laughs> um, things will make sense soon. Um, like and They got it right, whatever they did. Yeah, yeah, they did. I, I should have been documenting it all so that I could look back on specific things and be like, that's how you do it, write a handbook. Um, I feel like it will come to you. You think about a lot of things quite deeply, don't yeah, you? Yeah, um, maybe. Um, so I think, I think Tokyo will just be this really nice culmination of, of my second life to date and kind of the whole progression through for my parents just to know where it was I came from everyone who's helped me along the way and almost like a celebration, I suppose. Okay, away from that. You and I have something in, co- in common. We're Man United fans. We are. Oh, I just need to talk to you about something that's a little bit lighter. Okay, okay? Just, yeah. just, just for me. So, like, what are you expecting of Man United next season? Did you watch them last season? I did. <laughs> and? Oh, um, really, you're really throwing me out there. You're getting an opinion. <laughs> Um, it doesn't have to be expert. We just need to talk football. We need to talk something else. Yeah, for sure. For my sake. Okay. I've been too heavy for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all Wear you out. Terrific. Um, I grew up watching Man United. Um, I remember when they won the treble in 99, 2000, I think mm-hmm. it was. And, the, you know, they had the likes of Teddy Sheringham and David Beckham and the Nevilles and Schmeichel. And it's interesting how I'm not English and I wasn't even playing soccer at the time or football. I was, I was playing hockey and um, running and things like that. But soccer was just the sport that I enjoyed watching and Man United was just my team. And it's funny how as a kid, you can just watch a team a few times and be like, I like those players. I don't know why. And I just like that team and I like their aura and they've just been my team ever since. It's been hard over the last few years when you're spoilt for yes. success for so long and then That's suddenly... That's why no one has sympathy for us. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly the team, um, I guess, went through a bit of a rebuild and it didn't seem to matter what names got thrown in. There just wasn't that, there wasn't that cohesiveness, whereas I feel like last season we started to see that. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like the camaraderie really started to shine through, especially with 
Cavani. I liked how genuine and authentic he seemed to be on the pitch when, I don't know, he'd score or he'd miss. It was like, it was raw and you could kind of feel the chemistry between. Yeah, like he cared. Exactly. He cared to wear the jersey and you could feel like that kind of connection with the jersey was probably already there with the team, but maybe someone like him helped them feel more comfortable expressing it on the pitch. And so I feel like they, yeah, they all really started to gel. So I'm, I'm excited for next season yeah. um, to see, see what they can do, especially that the Premier League is the definition of high performance. What was good enough last season isn't going to be good enough the next season. It just constantly continues to push the standard higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I enjoy watching it for that reason too, in that a team that maybe five years ago not many people gave a lot of credit to suddenly, you know, they could be contenders, they could be going to Europe. It's, you know, players don't seem to, I'm not in that world, but players don't seem like they turn their nose up at lower Premier League clubs anymore. They, they're happy to sign just to get a taste of the football and the competitiveness and, and help, you know, another club evolve. And I think it's just exciting for the game. What about studying? You said you were studying. What are you studying at the moment? I'm studying law at the moment. Is that all? Yeah. Okay, how far in are you into this degree? <laughs> I thought you wanted to keep this light. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to know, like, obviously there's a, a lot to you. I just want to know a little bit, uh, bits and pieces, because it's important. You, you know, yeah, I, I enjoy and you're studying law. I enjoy studying law um, more so because I find that, like, there is a governance side of high-performance sport. It, it's not just competing. There's, you know, there's policies, there's governance, and... Um, what I find is that most of the time it's, it's unawareness that, that some policies or governance type documents that get developed, there could be things that are a little bit off there. And while athletes don't necessarily understand the law or you know, the intricacies of what they're reading, they understand if something doesn't feel right. And that creates a little bit of a dis- disruption and error between administration and an athlete and that's a problem because they both share common goals and the common goals is performance the only way I feel to get a good performance out of someone especially when you're in a team is to have a harmonious relationship if you look at any squad um, the best ones I find at least relative to to who I am and, and how I'm wired is that there's there's a lot of harmony there there's a lot of respect um, there's a lot of cohesiveness and a, and a desire to, to collaborate and do the right thing by one another or understand what the right thing is. And I suppose that's my motivation behind studying sport is so that when I'm no longer competing, hopefully there's something that I can contribute to the industry in another way. I'm sure you will. When you say no longer competing, do you have an idea in your, your head? It's, is it Tokyo? Is it beyond Tokyo? Have you got... I'm not saying wrap up your career. Um, no, no, it's an interesting question and it's something that I have been thinking um, about and I suppose, like, sport's hard. It is hard. It is emotional, but it's also hard, it, like, physically, physically hard. Physically, yeah, of course. Um, for triathlon, like, we train seven days a week, like, most days and multiple sessions a day. Um, and your life, it, it's very much a lifestyle sport, which is the case for a lot of high-performance sports in that I say lifestyle in the fact that your life then becomes around it and um, you make a lot of decisions in your life that prioritize the sport and you know you choose to do that but 
it very much does take over your life. And when you're kind of stuck in that by choice for a long time, it, it can start to weigh on you. And, you know, the you probably know that saying like glass half empty or half full. I started to dwell on how much was in the glass and that I felt like there wasn't as much in the glass as there used to be. And I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it's time for me to move on or, not, or whatever. And I guess this is where COVID played another um, profound moment for me as well is that I realized that it doesn't actually matter how much is in the glass it's just whether there's something in the glass or not and for me like there's still something in the glass so I'm not sure when the end will be but while there's something in the glass I'm still in the game (laughs) words to live by I think what are you most looking forward to when you land physically in Tokyo I think the the pride of of being at a Games and wearing an Australian Paralympic team uniform, um, I've often said before that the best thing about those sporting uniforms, and I I don't know whether they do it on purpose or whether it's just a coincidence, but, you know, whether it's a a Manchester United (laughs) jersey or an Australian Paralympic team uniform, like you wear the emblem like almost on your heart and, and that's exactly where it should be. Um, as sport is emotional, I find that the, the key kind of turns and everything feels like it, it's, it's flowing in the, in the right ways when you're on the ground, you're in the uniform and everything's real. It's time to go. All right. Well, um, you shared so much with us. Thank you. We can't wait to see what you do in Tokyo. It's obviously a brave new world, whole new world. We don't know how it's going to look, but uh, no doubt you'll be a success. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on that podium or whatever your gold medal (laughs) moment is, Nick. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to hear more incredible stories from our athletes going for gold at the Tokyo 2020 Games. You can see full coverage of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games on 7 and 7 Plus. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.